Good evening and welcome to Italian Impact Weekly. I'm your co-host Steve Stefano Mancini. As always, I'm joined by Claudio Rilassono. We have a very special guest today. He is the Managing Director of Family Wealth Consulting for Key Private Bank. He is also a speaker and author, and I've known him for quite a few years now because our daughters went to school together a thousand years ago, Mr. Jeff Getty. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me. All right, all right. First, Jeff, tell, and it's ironic because your book is called The Descent. The Descent is the Real Climb. My first question is, tell us about your climb to the position you have today. How did it all start? Wow. Okay. So um, I got there in a kind of an unusual way. Uh, I started out, I graduated from University of Pittsburgh Law School in 1996, did a detour after that to do a startup trust company in Wilmington, Delaware for a few years, was recruited back to the Pittsburgh area, spent a number of years doing uh, traditional tax strategy work, things like that as a tax attorney and then moved back out east to Philadelphia to do another startup, which was successful, and then ended up about 12 years ago moving back to the Pittsburgh area and was recruited into Key to start up their business advisory practice. And that's what I've been doing since then. That's how I ended up in this seat. Did you ever think that it would come to this, to what you're doing now? And, and were you prepared for it? So did I think, uh, of course, I will say I was 100% prepared for it because mm -hmm. it worked out great. Did I think it would end up this way? No. Uh, I had a career ticket punch for me that was kind of a more of a traditional tax attorney approach to the world and ended up thinking somewhere along the way, hey, I really enjoy doing transactional work. And uh, so morphed that into a, a job that took the best of my finance, tax, legal background and kind of uh, connected all those dots and started up that consulting practice to make that happen. So didn't foresee it, didn't plan it necessarily, but about 12 years ago had that aha moment and it all kind of came together. Could you have, and how long have you been with him? Uh, 12 years. 12 years, okay. Yep. When you first started, could, would you have been able to do the job you're doing now when you first started? Or those jobs that you had kind of led up to this and made you what you are now? I think all those jobs led up to it. So doing several different things, including some entrepreneurial stuff of my own, made me a better advisor for business owners. And I couldn't have done it without having that background and experience as varied and as multidisciplinary as it actually is. Okay. I always want to go back in time because you said you start off in law school. Mm -hmm. But then after law school, you go into the kind of the finance, tax law, I'm assuming then. True. Yeah. More of a finance than, than true tax law, but sure. Yeah. So the... The irony was before you went to law school, was that what you saw going to law school was going to entail or was, I mean. Not at all. I went to law school because I thought I wanted to work as a prosecutor and uh, was in law school for about a year. I'm like, wow, litigation work, legal work, traditional legal work didn't seem all that interesting to me, seemed like uh, wasn't a great career choice necessarily. And on a pure happenstance, I took a tax course and everything around the law, finance, and tax kind of synced together and made sense to me. And from that point on, I took as much tax courses as I could, graduated, uh, did a traditional tax attorney kind of career, it, to some extent, right? It was, it was based in the financial world. It was through a startup trust company, but they really were relying very heavily on my tax background to help navigate clients through some vexing situations. And yeah, just kind of gelled together completely uh, not planned. Which is ironic because a lot of people think they've got their life figured out what they want to be when they're 18, 19 years old. You're in your undergrad and then you go off and you pick your graduate school and you're thinking, oh, I want to go be a lawyer. I mean, this is obviously not what you saw yourself doing 19, 20, 21 years old. 
Oh, goodness, no. Uh, never. I often joke with myself if I, my 18-year-old self met my 50-some-year-old self, <laughs> you would think, boy, you're a pretty uncool guy. Uh, but uh, I would disagree with that 18-year-old self. I think it's ended up just fine. Uh, it's been a great career. I really enjoy what I do. And one of the things I really feel very lucky is I have a lot of friends and colleagues who have backgrounds similar to mine who just don't really enjoy what they do. And I love what I do. I, I love the, the interaction I have with the clients. I love doing transaction work. I do a lot of M&A work. And every deal is a new adventure, a new experience. I learn something new every day. And it's a, it's a great career choice. It really is. And I'm, and I'm imagining that when, you know, again, part of the show's intent is to kind of inform, educate, and people are listening and we're hoping they're paying attention. It's, number one, you're not going to have your life figured out. You'd be 50-something years old and think, eh, you don't have my life figured out. What do I want to be when I grow up? I still say that. Sure. But um, at, the, at, at the same time, it's... When people get a terminal degree, you said something kind of like, kind of funny. You know, they they might have this terminal degree, they got a great career, but they're not quite happy. And the problem is, is they commit too far to it. You were able to kind of pivot very early on. I was, and I have to say, uh, to give some credit to my wife, who was a law school classmate, who really encouraged me uh, at a very young age when she should have been probably most concerned about the guy she was going to marry, should be able to have a traditional career and make some money. When I said I really wasn't enjoying that traditional path I was on, I want to take a big left turn, she was like, great, do it. And every time I've made a left turn in my career, and there's been several times where I've gone down a very different path, she's always been very supportive of that and very much in tune with, hey, follow your dream, follow what you think is the right choice, uh, be careful. Right? So you, you make a decent living out of it. But if this is what your passion is, follow it, which is great. What were some of the obstacles transitioning, pivoting from your previous life slash job slash work to this? Oh, wow, there were so many. Um, so I'd say first and foremost, what makes me a little bit unusual as a, as a tax attorney, or as an, less so as an attorney in general, but a tax finance guy and a deal guy, is I have no traditional undergraduate level experience in that field at all. I was a political science major and ran away from as much science and math and finance as I could in those days. And it was only later in life when it all started to gel, I was like, wow, this is really great. And I took it upon myself. So this was a big left turn about two years into practice, three years into practice, whatever it was, I didn't really know enough. So I went back to night school, recently married with a, with a kid, a little baby in the house. Actually, my wife was pregnant when I started and got a master's of science in taxation from, a, uh, from Duquesne University. And um, did that in night school, working full time. And that really opened up my eyes even further, opened up a lot of interesting doors and just kept doing that throughout my career. I've looked for opportunities that look, seem a little different, talked to a lot of people, just get a flavor. Hey, what is it you do? Do you enjoy it? Okay, is there openings in what you do? Is it something that's worthwhile? Does it sync up with what I know? And so that's, I don't know if that 100% answers your question, yeah. but that's kind of how I view the world. <laughs> but, you know, back to what you said earlier, I, I, I'm sure all three of us know some people that work, but they just don't like their jobs. And, and that would be, I mean, we all have, uh, you know, you, you think of a singer and he performs in front of all these people or a talk show host or a coach or whatever. And there's always something that's going to, you know, ruin your day or a, an obstacle or a pebble in your shoes, they say. But somebody who just doesn't like their job, and you made a great decision, obviously, to do that, um, and, and obviously overcame the obstacles. But the thing that you said, though, Dorothy, your wife, which we'll get to later, it's so important to have that person in your life to support you, because if not, it, it's really a, a tug of war. And, it can, and, and you won't be good at what you do. 
Yeah, uh, the support, the 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 you know the the willingness to, to roll the dice a little bit. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That having a, a good partner is just awesome. Sure. I always like to say the other funny thing. You're from Pittsburgh, born and raised? No, actually I'm not. Uh, I moved here to go to law school. I grew up in North Jersey, uh, outside of New York City. If you listen real closely, once in a while you'll catch the North Jersey accent. <laughs> but it's been a long time, so I don't have a ton of it left. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I grew up out in New Jersey. Okay, I was going to say, and you just came, came here and it just kind of worked out this way? I mean... So I came here, the idea was I didn't really have it pegged exactly how I saw my, my future. I kind of sort of thought I might end up in New York because that's where uh, a lot of lawyers go or D.C., one of the big markets. But uh, I ended up meeting my wife in my second year of law school, my future wife, I should say. And uh, she's a local. She's from here, born and raised. I was looking and for the roots. That's the root. There it is. And, um, you know, I, I love this area. It's great. I, I tell my friends to this day who still live in the, you know, New York area, they're like, I don't see how you can live out there. I'm like, are you kidding me? You ever been here? I mean, the you, access to outdoors and smaller You city. know, it, it's funny because one thing that Pittsburgh has done well is they recovered from being a purely steel manufacturing when all that stuff went under. And you can go to a lot of the Rust Belt cities. Sure. And they have not quite recovered. Pittsburgh has kind of repositioned itself. And I don't think people appreciate the number of what I call white-collar jobs that are here. There are a lot. There are a lot of headquarters here. There's a lot of IT in this area, a lot of healthcare, And there, there's a lot of draw putting aside to your point that, you know, you're not in an overcrowded city. And I used to work in a company, we had an office in New York. Mm -hmm. So I used to go out to New York and I would go out there and about, after about two days, you're like, eh, I'm ready to go back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I tell people this all the time. So I've been lucky enough in my career to have done deals or, or work in 43 states. Uh, I've been to all 50 states. I've been to a mm -hmm. bunch of foreign countries. And I think a lot of times people who if particularly if they grew up in a particular area, they always believe, and I sort of thought this way, that oh, wouldn't it be great to go to this area of the country or this particular city? It's great, great, great. What I've found over my career, having spent a lot of time in these different, like really cool hot cities, so to speak, there are some great things no matter where you go. It's what you make out of it. But you really start to appreciate the wonderful work lifestyle balance opportunities that exist in Western Pennsylvania when you spend time other places. Right. It's amazing. And I tell people, you know, from uh, access to stuff, you know, if the, the, some of the trails I take my dogs on around Pittsburgh or hikes and things like that, or bike trails, it would be a starter's gate with a stopwatch for people in a lot of places I've been, because there's so many people who want to do this stuff <laughs> here. There's barely lines for anything. It's awesome. Yeah. It's what a great experience. Yeah, I lived outside of D.C. for about 10 years. And it's funny you say that because there was a little lake called Burke Lake. I used to live in Fairfax County. And there was a little lake called Burke Lake, and you want to go run around the lake. And you're not kidding. You are literally, you know, trying to find a parking spot, you know, trying to, excuse me, pardon me, I'm going to jog past you. You know, and you just, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I appreciate Western Pennsylvania. Now, I kind of want to, let's jump ahead now. So after you've kind of settled, you know, you sound like you bounced around a little bit before you kind of came back. Throughout your career, anything in particular was drawing you anywhere or was it just a question of uh, opportunities? It was really just opportunities, although I certainly did initially limit uh, opportunities to a relatively large but kind of small geographic region. I didn't really look to move to like a Seattle or California or something like that, but I went where I saw 
less of a short-term opportunity. I've always been very strategic in my thought processes of, well, if I make this move, whether it's a physical move or a job move or whatever it is, what does this look like two, three, four, five years from now? Am I better off? Am I worse off? I'm the same. What does this do for me developmentally that helps me long-term? So I always encourage, I have three kids and I always encourage them, don't make all short-term decisions, right? Those are relatively easy to get your head around. Make sure you're playing for the long game because the long game was usually what the, the winner is. I truly believe that. What is your role to help families build wealth? What do you do? Wow. So when we talk about building wealth, uh, I would say first and foremost as a primarily a business advisor. So inside the realm of uh, wealth, what surprises most people is uh, statistically across the United States, there's about a $10 trillion wealth transfer that's going to happen over the next 10 years or so. As the baby boomers pass on, uh, they will be transitioning that wealth to the next generation or generations. Like I said, it's estimated to be about 10 trillion. I've seen numbers that are higher. What most people don't understand is 60 to 70% of that wealth is tied up inside of closely held businesses or closely held assets. So the sliver of the world I deal with is really that bigger piece, which is the business piece. I don't really get involved in traditional wealth management and building wealth that way. The vast majority of my work is helping shepherd business owners and businesses through the typical life cycle of uh, startup growth and then some sort of transition or transaction. And uh, that last piece is oftentimes the most vexing piece for owners because they get on some level how to do the first two. Hey, you start a business. I'm really good at growing it. I'm really good at attracting clients, whatever it is. Very different skill set, very different mindset, how to convert that to different owners, different ownership, and how to monetize that. And that's the piece of the puzzle that I really focus the vast majority of my time in is that last stage, that last piece, and just the business owners themselves. Do you have a set thing that you go by or uh, like like in baseball, to use that as an example, like in hitting, some of these coaches want to, to just put a stamp on everybody. Everybody does the same thing. But in baseball, anyway, I've had twins that batted differently. So you can't use the same. There's some things you have to adhere to, yes. But um, I always use Hunter Pence. Hunter Pence did everything wrong, but you let him go. You know, Clemente was another one who did a lot of things wrong, <laughs> right. right? But you leave him go. Um, but do you have a, a game plan ahead of time, that, like a stamp, which could be different in business or some things you have to follow? Or do you just kind of uh, listen to them, give them a so-called physical, and then go from there? Yeah, it's the latter, not the former. There definitely are common threads across transactions right. and across transitions. But what I find is relatively unique in this space is that I don't come into a a situation with any sort of preconceived notions. I usually start off a conversation with clients is to say, well, walk me through what you've done. I want to understand your business intimately. If I get a tour of their facility, whatever it is, I really want to understand what makes their business and them tick. Then it's, okay, walk me through the next, and I don't care what the time frame is, whatever the most comfortable is, six month, one year, three year, five year window. What does really good look like to you? And if they're thinking transition transaction, okay, what's the time frame? Who would you like to see have this business? How would that be accomplished? Would cash have to change hands or not? Are your kids ready? Do you have management team that's ready? And each one of those, as I ask those series of questions, tends to narrow the focus down to certain types of strategies and thought processes. But I tell everyone, look, every business is unique. Every exit or every transition is going to be unique. And my job is to help people become educated 
and help guide them to the perfect scenario for them and their business, and no two are exactly the same. Right. Steve, if you don't mind, there's something that when he when he said when you said that, without mentioning names, but there are three businesses that were very successful in the Pittsburgh area, and outside of Pittsburgh, I'm thinking, and the parents ran it well, and they were big time places, and the kids took over, ran it to the ground. Do you maybe foresee that sometimes when you tell them, hey, I don't think that that might be a good idea to leave it to your kids or have them run it? Have you ever had to come across something like that? Oh, sure. Lots of times. How hard is that for you to tell them? that? And do they get mad? It can be very hard and they can get very angry. So I guess as I get gray hair uh, and I've been doing this a while, you start to learn how to approach those situations because they can be very delicate. Look, I've got three kids. I love my kids very much. And I love them all equally. Does that mean I see them all as equally equal in their ability to run a business or any of them to do it? And the answer is not necessarily, right? We have to see our kids for who and what they are sure. and who and what they're not. So a large part, when someone is very <clears throat> insistent, that's what they want to do. That's They want to have it go to the next generation. Start off the conversation with, great, let's explore that a little bit. Let's march through, talk to me about them. Eventually, I'd like to interview them. I'd like to get a flavor for them. And then interview the other people, non-family members involved in the business. And if it's not going to align, it's not going to work to go back to the uh, the original, the patriarch owner, the matriarch owner, and say, okay, here's what I uncovered. Here's what I think. Here's as an advisor and professionally recommending to you that we look at other options. It's <laughs> yeah. um, a nice way to put it. Yeah, yeah it's experience counts. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it can be very vexing. And there have been a couple situations where I've actually been – uh, kicked out of an engagement from the client because they don't want to hear the truth that day, they usually come back around. And it usually comes back around with, I tried to do this with my kids or I tried to do it with my kid, and it's not going well. So how do I undo this? Mm. So that's, I wouldn't say vindication. It's painful, but it's part of the job. That would be tough, though, to tell some you know, your own kid isn't going to do a good job with this. You know, it's funny because they say love is blind. And so that level would apply to your kids as well. You want to see them for what you think they are. You see, you always see your kids, and I'm a parent. I got three kids. Claudio's got a child. You got three kids. You always see your kids as your kids. Mm-hmm. You're growing up full of adults, functioning in society, very successful. It's still my kid. And when someone does start a business, and, I, and, I, and let's talk about that first generation for a second. You know, let's say the person that has the idea gets the loan, whatever, and all of a sudden. 30 years later, they've got a successful business. Millions and millions of dollars coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe they've groomed the kid to take over. Maybe they haven't. But the reality is there are lessons learned in the build-up process that you can't pass down per se. There, there, there's, it, it's, it's almost like a knowledge management problem where I, can't, I don't know how to transfer the, the lessons that I learned building the business to the kid, but but you said it. It's a it's a different way to. I, I run the business different in growth versus maintenance. You know, versus it's an entrepreneurial you know a, a, you know effort. And so, with that being said, you're sitting here working on these businesses that are, that are at that. Well, I'm not calling it a plateau, meaning they can't you know grow anymore. But they're at a plateau where it's a, it's a steady business. It's running. It's operating. It's fine. If nothing changed, they would be all right. Fair statement. Um. Yes, that is some of them. If we're going to go down a transaction, a sale process. Well, that's where I'm going. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm going. Okay. I'm going down to the next one, which is okay. There's two. Again, the old man says, "Hey, I'm getting old. I don't want to do this anymore. I've got two options: either I'm going to sell the business, give the money to my kids, or I'm going to give the business to my kids." Yep. Now, 
you are making those recommendations at times, correct? Absolutely. And, and, and there are times where you say, <laughs> either bring in some new operators, managers, or you know everything you've worked for is probably not going to be here in five years. Definitely. And they say, get out. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> That's okay. Love is blind. And then sometimes they tell you to come back. And now let's go on the one scenario because there's, there's, yeah, there's multiple paths you can do. But let's say the scenario is that you look and you say, this kid is not going to do it. And there are a lot of businesses out there. I mean, if you've ever gone to a good restaurant, you say, oh, so-and-so's retired, his kid runs, and you go, this place is terrible. What yeah. the hell happened? It's been here for 60 years, and now you know, they're, you know nobody's coming in here anymore. There, there's a problem. So when, that, when you see that's going to happen, it's a train wreck ultimately waiting to happen. True. And so one of the things, so there's this often quoted statistic of the ability of a business to survive three generations, about 60, 50% go successfully transition from first to second, second to third gets it over that overall number down to like 10%, 8%, somewhere in the neighborhood. So the ability to transition businesses between multiple generations is very challenging is the, the point of it. What we've been able to develop as an industry to a large extent is if somebody really, really, really is adamant that they want the business to stay within the familial line. There are options that can make that can work, right? So when we do that, and there's an example of this in, in the book I wrote about doing a partial sale process to bring in a professional management team. Uh, so you have the ability to have the majority of the ownership sit with the family, but the day-to-day control of the business, the operations, the things that make it tick, that generate the income, that make pe- continue people to be employed, can be accomplished. So I usually tell people, look, if we have enough time and to a certain extent access to capital if necessary or other advisors, that we can make almost anything work. The key is do we have enough time and there's not extingent problems with particular individuals. And I'm talking specifically like, hey, I want my kid to take over, but they have a drug problem. Okay, well, we need to fix the drug problem before they can take <laughs> right. over the business, right? Yeah. That would be one that would be an extingent circumstance. But I've done a lot of deals um, over the years where we've ended up bringing in a professional management team to run the business for the family. And now, these are typically for larger businesses, though. I mean, this is going to be a mom-and-pop grocery store. At that point, it's like... It's really hard to do right. that. But what you could do with like a something traditional like that, they probably already have a store manager that might be non-family just, member. Just stay in charge. Yeah, right. just keep them in charge and find a successor for them and let the kids kind of stay in the background, highest and best use. I've sliced and diced larger businesses. So I have businesses, for example, that have multiple different legs to them. Uh, so there's different businesses inside the overall family enterprise, and we've we've done structural work so that each kid runs a particular business line they're best suited for, and we share revenue. So that we can be pretty creative there. Real quick, what do you think is the one thing? What's the one stumbling block for why? Why, for example, the descendants when they inherit the business don't do well? What what is the one thing that you would say? I see this is this is how I know this isn't probably going to work. What's the characteristic, if you will? Um, I would say I can, I can answer that by putting a positive spin on it. What ones tend to be the most successful? When I see entrepreneurs, business owners who really want to have the next generation take over, they typically have a very strict set of criteria for how children come into the business, where they come in. You know, a job is not an, a right of being a family member. A management position is not a right of being a family member. They view them 
as we gotta you earn it. any you got to earn it or as any employee and really the ones that tend to work the best are instead of hey i started a business and i bring my kids in and they you know i like look after school you're going to have to work for somebody else for three to five years you can't work for me you're going to have to work in the industry in a different industry because you want them to see what the rest of the world looks like because that the ability to divide up between the personal side of the balance sheet and the business side of the balance sheet in a closely held business, let alone the family dynamics, is almost impossible. Like now, do you're you, bringing do you, a lot of baggage. Do you see a, a lot of uh, you know first-generation business owners doing that for their kids? Is that common? It, it's gotten a lot better as the education process has gotten better and as people have started to see that if you rewind back in time, right – um, people looked at business transitions of uh, basically I have two choices. Either I can run it till the day I die and my kids will take over and it'll be okay, or I have to sell it because my, my kids just can't handle it. And, and those are at the very high level the two main strategic options, but there's so many variables inherent in each one of those and embedded in each one of those that it's it's becomes more of an education process to teach people that that isn't in and of itself a vacuum decision it's okay we want to achieve this let's talk about how that would look and let's talk about how we fix things to make it look better now before we go on break and, and after the break we're going to talk about your book when we we've talked about restaurants or whatever steve you mentioned or other businesses that have failed somewhat but how about some that have succeeded and one that pops in the mind is the wwe vince mcmahon senior was running pittsburgh providence rhode island new york new jersey uh and they i mean boston they stayed in that little circle and it was the biggest federation really from from 63 and then the son vince took over in 83 and in 84 and 85 is when he just took over the world. He, he went outside of those that small circle. It was, an, it was the number one promotion when Vince McMahon Sr. had it, but now it's the only promotion because the son had that vision. Have you come across things like that where the, the kids just blew it out of the water even bigger? I was on a phone call today with one of those clients mm-hmm. where his dad had started the business back in the late 50s. And had taken it to a very high-functioning, highly productive, what I call lifestyle business. It wasn't really growing, but it was providing a great lifestyle for the family. When dad decided it was time to let his son take over, when his son was in his 30s, um, the son had an entirely different vision and took it to a whole new level. It became more of a national as opposed to regional business. Signed up some big deals with some big, well-known clients, customers in the food industry. And that business has gone from an enterprise value when he got it from his dad of maybe $10 million in back in the, what would that have been, whatever I said, the late 60s, early 70s, to a 300 million plus enterprise today. Mm. Just had a vision, worked hard, dad, saw the world differently, which was cool. It was a great lifestyle for him, great way sure. to raise his kids. Son taught an entirely different context. I'd say very much like the WWE. Right. Like just okay. saw the opportunity and had the right mindset to do it. Right. Now, before we go on break, one more question. How much has – give me a percentage, if possible, the success you've had, the things that you teach, the things that you talk about, um, how much of it was learned in college – and how much was this Fran Targenton, the old Hall of Fame quarterback, says, I had my hands in the soil, and that's how I learned experience. Or like my dad used to say, I've been through it, I did it. The vast majority is from experience. I, I think 
traditional education is wonderful. It teaches you things in a way to think and shows you how to navigate through, for example, financial analysis, things like that. Like that's hard to do learning on the fly, so mm -hmm. to speak. So super important for the basics, the, the, the basic structure, the foundational structure, the actual ability to come in and successfully navigate a highly complex intersection of, like I said, finance, law, tax, into a successful transition transaction, experience counts a ton. I hated to hear that when I was starting out, like, well, what could you possibly know because you're so young? I totally get it now. There's a lot. <laughs> but having said all that, one of the things I do like to do and really do enjoy this, I do some guest lecturing, some, some speaking engagements. I do speak at some universities. And I always look for younger talent, people who are very interested in this field. And as I recruit and hire those people on board, I try to teach them as much as I can. I let them sit in second or third chair, so to speak. I'm like, look, in this first couple of meetings, don't say anything, just listen. I'll talk to you for hours afterwards because somebody did that for me. Somebody helped me go through that. And if you have a good mentor that helps you do it, it puts you so much further ahead in your career and in your advisory capability. So long with the answer to the question, I, I, I do see a huge value in traditional education as, as I call it, the non-traditional hands in the dirt, as you said, really takes things over the top. Okay. Big part of our practice. All right. Well, we're going to, when we come back, we're going to talk about your book, The Descent is the Real Climb by Jeff Getty. But Steve and I do another show called Italian Impact Weekly, which can be heard live every Thursday from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. on WKHB Radio. Uh, 620 AM, 102.1 FM. If you missed the show, go to www.italianimpactweekly.com. And we've had such great guests as Mario Andretti, Vince Ferragamo, Chris Corciani, Vince Papali. And we have some other uh, well-known names coming up soon that I'm working on that you will definitely enjoy. And of course, Talking Business and Life with Claudia Rosano and Steve Mancini can be heard on crsmmedia.com. Uh, we've had other great guests like Jerry Cooney, uh, boxing icon. We have Donnie Lalonde, former light heavyweight champ of the world. World Series hero Jim Rooker will be on eventually. i got to get nailed Jim down. Great guy. And uh, we've also uh, touched on some topics like different funnels of income, dealing with rejection, pivoting to a new career. And, of course, we have our new guest, Jeff Getty, who's uh, been a great guest, and you'll definitely learn something from his interview. Uh, also, my show, The Claudio Relsano Show, you can hear that on ClaudioRelsano.com. I've had such great guests as Ken Griffey Sr., Rocky Blyer, Dick Vermeil, Roman Gabriel, Pierre LaRouche, Mario Andretti, Vince Ferragamo, Vince Papali, a lot of the same guys, but we ask different questions. Uh, my book, Lead from the Heart Up, Not to Neck Up, How to Create a Positive Winning Culture on the Field and in the Office, you can get that book on ClaudioRelsano.com. My publisher, John Melvin JohnMelvinPublishing.com, Barnes & Noble in Robinson Township, BarnesandNoble.com, and Amazon.com. We'll be right back with Jeff Getty. Thanks to Greater Pittsburgh Travel. For any of your travel needs, let Tom and the team at Greater Pittsburgh Travel know, and they'll take care of you. For more information, call 412-331-2244 or visit their website at www.GreaterPittsburghTravel.com. For all of your plumbing needs, be sure to try Pellucci Plumbing, Nick and the team have decades of experience and will get you back up and running. For more information, call Pellucci Plumbing at 412-782-5050. And we want to thank the Calabria Club of Pittsburgh. If you're interested in learning more, you can find their contact information on Facebook at Calabria Club of Pittsburgh. Again, thanks Domenica and the team at the Calabria Club of Pittsburgh for your support. And we want to thank La Scuola d'Italia Galileo Galilei, the only nonprofit school in Pittsburgh endorsed by the Italian consulate. If you're interested in learning Italian or have your children being immersed in the Italian culture and language, 
be sure to give them a call at 412-404-7070. And that's La Scuola d'Italia, Galileo Galilei. Okay, Jeff, the book, The Descent is the Real Climb, Unexpected Truths About Successful Business Transitions. Why did you write this book and what's it about? Okay, um, so start off with why. A uh, couple things intersected. So one of the th things I found most effective as a teaching methodology for new prospects and clients was to tell them stories of similar circumstances, similar experiences with other clients. I know that personally, I tend to hear a story and try to place myself inside of it somewhere. And so over a period of a number of years of working in this field, clients would oftentimes come back and say, you know, I wasn't really sold on working with you till you told me that story. And I was like, wow, this guy understands this. He understands where my head is. So a number of those clients over the years said, you should really write a book. And like, <laughs> just most, like that, right? Just like, no, no big deal. <clears throat> and, you know, life gets in the way. Well, um, actually, when COVID hit and we were in lockdown, and my job requires a lot of travel, I do deals literally all over the United States. And when we hit a travel stoppage for about 14 months at, at our firm, I decided this was the time to do it. So I put pen to paper and started writing. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I knew I just wanted to tell stories. So my first crack at this was about 800 pages long. Oh. <laughs> a lot of stories. You, you wrote 800 pages? I now. did, yeah, and which is an enormous amount of effort. Yeah. And I started talking, interviewing um, editors and ended up hiring one who was interested in my topic, interested in the series, an awesome guy, love him. He's been just a huge help in this process. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he looked at, took a look at my first draft and basically said, are you completely insane? You cannot write an 800-page book that anybody would read. Uh, you're, you're, you're not- It like, would be forced reading at a university. Yeah, exactly. He's like, there's just no way. He's, he's like, I see some common threads. What you really need to focus on is how do you narrow this down into a book? Because I envision this book as a something you give to a business owner who is thinking about a transition or transaction and could read it on a medium plane ride, say two to three hours, and pick your top stories, experience. So I did. And so I spent the next few months whittling them down and condensing them, getting rid of them. Uh, in my mind, there's a volume two sitting somewhere out say, there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I tried to focus. The other thing I tried to focus on was the positive outcomes. They're not all positive. I got plenty of <laughs> negative outcomes. And I learned more from the negative outcomes sure. than I ever from the positive. However, most of that book is really about the, the positive outcomes. So that's how I, that's why I did it, was out of uh, necessity or suggestion from a client. And then from my experience, uh, how I envisioned utilizing it was when I meet somebody and to tee them up, to get them so I don't have to spend hours with them telling stories, I would give them this. And then our second meeting would be much more productive. And that's precisely how I've used, utilized it since then. Well, you'd absolutely want them to have some kind of, some kind of knowledge ahead of time. The, the one thing I, I feel, it's a societal problem in my opinion. There's a lot of intellectual laziness. They go to the expert and they say, you handle it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to think about this. But these people that were successful didn't have that. They had to make these decisions early. And, and, and you know, in a lot of businesses, those decisions don't work out. Most businesses are not $100 million businesses. There are a lot of failed businesses, whether it's a small business, large business. There are a lot of businesses that got on the right path. Whatever happened, they're off the right path. And now we talk about them in a history book is remember them. 
I mean, I still uh, remember my Commodore computer from the 80s. So there's oh, a yeah. little flashback for you. <laughs> remember? I mean, but you can go, we can go back to these big names. And you think these, these people will be around for 100 years. But there was something in that initial, in the you know, in the in the what I'll call I'll call it the first generation of leadership in that business. There's a characteristic. What is that characteristic, in your opinion, that, that made the difference? Because what I see when, I'm, when I look at your book, and I think of something like knowledge management, that's a very big challenge for companies. Is you've got people that have this we call it tribal knowledge. Sometimes, I've been working here for 10, 20 years. I know a lot of stuff. It's not in the manual. All right. But now I've got, I'm going to be leaving one day, and I need to transfer this stuff. But I can't just say, here's, here's my brain, put it on. So when I look at a book, I say, you're, you're attempting a knowledge management, you know, a transfer here. And I say, look, these are my lessons. But you've obviously seen that first generation, those successful people. What are some of the things that you saw from them that when you're sitting down with the second or third generation, you're going, you know, I'm gonna, I, I don't see that in you, and that's why I don't think this is going to work? Wow. Great question. We try. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it really gets to the heart of the matters. It, it's hard sometimes to, to articulate exactly what I would look for. It's almost like you know it when you see it. So as I explain to clients, most successful entrepreneurs I've met, so we're talking about the first generation, had a vision. They had a level of expertise in whatever it is they were going to do, whether they learned it from their father or their mother or whatever, or they worked for someone else and learned it. They have a high level of expertise and experience, and they see the opportunity or the inherent inefficiencies of where they're currently doing this work that they can do it better on their own. So they have the technical abilities, capabilities. They typically have a level of intelligence attached to that uh, work ethic, right? That's a lot of work to start up a business and really want to do it. And that might be the last category that's most important. There's a lot of people that have those first three. It's the want and desire of, I want to do this, even if it ends up making less well, you money. Should be your, you should be your toughest boss. Exactly. I believe that. 100%. And so if someone, they might have the best idea, right, and the ability to pull it off, but if they just don't want to do it, they prefer to have the safety and security of a, another organization above them to do it. That's where a lot of people end up. So if I don't see that level, those those four factors, so to speak, kind of aligning or the potential for them to align, I don't probably wouldn't probably see the ability to go to that that next that next generation. I would just say, look, they just don't have what it takes. And you, owner, know what it takes because you've done this, right? You know what you had to do, what you had to give up your experiences, that sort of thing. So it's hard to peg it. You kind of know when you see it, but that's the closest I could get to an analysis of this is what I would technically look for. We're going to go to a chapter here in your book, but something just hit me. Did you ever go into a meeting with a business that has done well with growth, but you, but you thought they could do much, much better, and they listened to you? Did you were you ever home in your office, oh, boy, I hope this works, and worry about <laughs> it? And then it does work. Well, Yes and no, I guess, is a, is a good lawyer hedge your bet answer. But <laughs> the answer is always maybe if you're yeah, a good lawyer. Yeah, maybe. It depends. <laughs> On the other hand, there's a whole bunch of things lawyers so learn in law Three school. years. <laughs> yeah, to learn that. Um, you know, oftentimes what, what's really interesting to me, and this is a big surprise to most owners, they seem to believe that, so it answers your question, someone on the growth side, but there's also a transaction issue going on here. They believe that going into a transaction, they get the highest value if they can demonstrate to a new buying group or owner that they've got everything wired in and locked in. That's not accurate. You want 
a buyer to give you top dollar to see there is more gas in the tank to do something else. So usually a big part of what we do is we're walking through growth strategy and growth cycles with a client who hasn't decided how they're gonna transition or transact, right? They just wanna get bigger, make more money, whatever it is. As we go through that process with them, we then start to uncover or develop um, a, a process or a mindset is where does this end up? If we're going to transact, we're probably going to want to start thinking about what are the things that are either too expensive, too complex, or too difficult for you as the current owner to do that we're going to push off to the side and know it's out there and know we could get a decent growth number with that and a good return number on it that we could bring into a sales process and explain to a potential buyer. That's okay. super important. So, you know, I'd like to tell people every there's a very linear process, and I do sometimes do guest lectures at university classes, and I tell the kids, say, look, you have a great textbook, and I'm not disputing that the way they've laid out how a process looks is pretty good. But understand, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I've never seen anyone follow that exact process. <laughs> so you kind of have to pivot a little bit. So that's, you know, part of that answer would be, as you see that growth, as you see the abilities, as you see as they're, they're turning that through, what path they ultimately take and what do we implement, do we not implement? And then to answer your question directly, yes, I have told clients at times I would or would not do that for the following reasons. And there's a bit of a, you know, creep your fingers crossed <laughs> yeah. because they just made a big strategic decision on your advice. Sure. But you got to believe in what you're doing. Yeah. You, I have the right knowledge, background, experience to give good advice. And do I get it right 100% of the time? No. Do I get yeah, it right the vast majority of the time? Sure. There you go. Paint a picture of this chapter. Creativity conquers complex transactions. So that That's a chapter in your book. Yeah, that is a chapter in the book. Thank you. So <laughs> transactions in and of themselves can be relatively complex. In its simplest format, they're not. It's, hey, I want to sell something. You want to buy something. We agree on a price. In its simplest form, that's what a transaction <laughs> yeah. does. What often happens is we have a gap between what I want and what you want to pay. And in the creativity inside that chapter is really brought on three, two different strategies. One is the creativity to get to the optimal outcome, meaning that how do we negotiate this deal? What levers can we pull? And uh, I'll come back to that in just a second. And the other is tax strategy. So those are the two big levers that I would talk about. Inside that first category of deal structure, oftentimes we end up uh, working through, well, okay, I want, I'll just use some numbers, I want $10 million for the business I'm trying to sell. You look at it and you say, wow, it could be worth $10 million to me. But in order for that to happen, Jeff, you're going to have to stay on board for two years and make that help me make that happen. Or, hey, there's a big risk in that number, so I need you to take that over a period of time to make sure we accomplish. These are deal parameters and deal, deal, deal strategies that say, okay, we both agree conceptually it's worth 10 but you don't believe in it so much that you're willing to pay me 10 cash at closing, so you're going to pay me six. I'll take two of that 10, the next $2 million, I will take in stock in your company, so in the new co, so we grow together, and the other two will be based on an earnout and what my company, my old company, actually contributes to the new company. So I still get my 10, but we've de-risked the deal from you and forced me to help make that happen. That's very common. So 
conversely, if you had just been willing to pay 100% cash, you might have only paid me six or seven million dollars. So if I don't want to continue to take the risk of the business, I can get paid out, but I'm not going to get as much money. So that is in large part what that chapter really refers to is like deal structures. Like how do we get to the number we, I want to get as a seller and you're willing to pay as the buyer? The other big lever, and this goes back to my historical roots and my background with the tax strategy work is, let's say we hit this, this zone of, I want 10, you really only believe it's worth you know, something less than that. And so when I deal with numerical values to clients, I oftentimes give them the post-tax number. So to get to 10, I actually have to sell it for 14, for example, or 15 or something like that. So sometimes we have a value gap inside of there where it's, hey, post-tax, it's not enough for me. So how do we close that gap? I can come in with my tax hat on and structure a deal where we can get that effective rate down substantially. So the example I typically give is on a national basis, most transactions, uh, business sales, have a uh, tax rate somewhere between 30 and 35% because depending on this, the deal, the state they're in, that sort of thing. But that's a good number to work off. So about a third of what you sell it <clears> where you pay to the taxing authorities. I tell clients all the time, if you are willing to be flexible and if you're willing to give me just a little bit of time to navigate through some issues, I'm very confident I can get that rate under 20%. In some cases, I can get it under 10%. Mm -hmm. That value difference can oftentimes be the difference between a deal getting done and not getting done. Right. So there's two major levers. One has a couple subparts too, but that's really what that chapter is getting at is deal creativity. And I, that's what I think the best value prop I bring to the table for clients is, hey, let's get creative. Let's make it happen. Let's let's be a good outcome for both sides. Is that what sets you apart, you think? I know Chris Corciani, one of our guests, said what sets you apart from somebody else? What sets you, is that what sets you apart, the creativity part of it? I think the creativity part, and that goes in with having a very diverse background in this field. Most people tend to either be a lawyer or an M&A advisor or they're an ESOP person. I've done all those things, so I have a different lens I look from, so that is the creativity piece. I also think a big part of that, and it probably ties in with creativity, is not coming in with preconceived notions. Really hard to fight that because it's really difficult sometimes to come into a scenario and say, oh, you're just like these folks <laughs> I dealt with three years ago, so their solution is going to work great for you. There's probably part of that that would look great, but part that wouldn't. I've actually, as the book has come out, I've had a couple clients call me up and say, am I the story in chapter or whatever? <laughs> and I changed the facts just enough so no one could really point to, that's my story. But m every one of my clients, I think, could look at some piece of that and say, "Sure, that's part of me. I remember yeah. that. I remember when we did that. And in a way, it probably is in some weird way. Because yeah. I'm sure there was some enough similarities that you say, you know, that's possible. But I, not important to them, you know. It's yeah. important is that's the lesson that's being taught. And that's really what the book was all about, was trying to give people an early look into, hey, like there's other people who've done this in front of you that have made mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes. Right, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll make different ones on right. your deal, but we're not going to make those same ones. Learn from that experience. And I want, I want to go back to something because you said, I've, you said I've done it all. I've done all these different roles. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the cyber field. My doctorate's in business. I'm a software engineer. My undergrad's cyber. You know, I've taught. I've written. All, I'm a unicorn. You're a unicorn. If you were going to give advice to younger folks that are coming out of school, because I, I'm with you, I, I, I as a, I'm a university professor and I, I quit my job and I teach full time now. Yep. 
And I tell people, and I tell my students this, I said, this is fantasy land here in a university. If you don't believe me, <laughs> look at the news. These people are out of their mind. They don't, they're, they're essentially, in a lot of ways, I hate to say it like this, as a university professor, there are a lot of people that, that come into academia and they, they lose touch with reality. What they're teaching isn't necessarily bad. It's fundamentals, it's keywords, it's formulas. You, you create this foundation of knowledge. But it may or may not be something you ever even use, depending on what you go out and do. But if you were going to advise students, say, look, I, I can't major in unicorn. Well, I, I don't know. It depends on the school nowadays. But it, normally, I can't you know, major in, in unicorn. I want to go into business. I like law. I like all these things. You know, give you a good, a, a good sentence. People say, I want to go into cybersecurity. And I say, what do you want to do? Well, cybersecurity. But what do you want to do? Do you want to program? Do you want to configure devices? Do you want to do policy? Do you, like, what do you want to do? When kids are coming out of school and they say, I, I, don't, I, I like what you're saying. I'm listening. I've read your book. It's great. I want to do that. What, what advice do you tell them? What do you, you, know, what do you say? Here's the, here's the path. Because there is no set path, right? There's not a good set path for sure because most of the set paths you would see in this space have a very linear process to where you end up, right? So if you want to do investment banking, here's the entry point, here's the steps along the way, and here's where you get to the part where you're running deals. Same way with lawyers, same way with uh, private equity groups. They all have this linear process. It, it's a tough question. I would say first and foremost, um, you know, do your research. And like the internet wasn't around when I was in school. So we couldn't like Google stuff, figure <laughs> things out, right? You had to use that gray matter. Yeah, they call you, it, had right? to, you had to pick up the phone and talk to people, call them like the, this internet is great. Tool. Humans. Yeah, <laughs> it's this great tool to learn. And I, I tell people all the time, and when I do speeches, I tell them, I'm like, I'm pretty easy to find in LinkedIn. If anything I say, whether it's on this or another pot or podcast or in my book, and you're interested, you are free to reach out to me. And I do get those outreach from younger kids, I'll call them, the kids my age, my, my kids' age. And I'm more than happy to give them, you know, a half hour of my time. If they local, I'll do it in person or just over the phone and say, look, here's my number. You can call me on this day and this time. I'll walk you through. Tell me what you're thinking. And I'm happy to talk to you. That ability to connect with people and just do that outreach and just say, hey, your profile looks really interesting. What is it you do exactly? And how did you get into that seat? One of the first questions, Claudia, you asked me, how did you get into this seat? Like it didn't just happen overnight. Mm -hmm. I'd say just be a sponge for that information. Don't be afraid to, you know, take a job that looks interesting. I mean, job hopping, as we used to call it back when I was a, a young lawyer, was definitely frowned upon. Not so much anymore. No, it, it, it's almost almost it's almost more frowned upon. Like, what are you still doing here after eight, ten years? Right. So that ability to pivot and change, and um, I, when you get a little further along in your career, at least what I do, like I've had a number of conversations that have come professionally over the years where I've been on the opposite side of a deal table from somebody or a transat transition table, so intra-family. And another advisor will say, I really am fascinated by what you do and how you do it. Would you be interested in joining our firm? Or would you, can I join your firm? I, I just have those, you know, like I tell people, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. People like me, I mean, we're all busy. I'm super impressed when I have an 18, 20, 22-year-old, 30-year-old who picks up the phone and gets some moment of my time and wants to pick my brain. I'll give them as much time as I possibly can because I'm super impressed by that. Right. Passively not doing that, that's going to hurt you. It, you know, if you like what somebody does, ask them how they got there. Well, it's, it's kind of like we said before, it's that drive. I mean, I, I see it. Kids are 22 years old. They're ready to write their memoirs. You're like, 
you can't possibly know anything. <laughs> you know, no offense, but, but you know, you might know a few things. And and I agree with what you just said. Be a sponge, pick brains, know that you don't know it all. I I think has always been my mantra. For me personally, I know that I don't know it all, and therefore I'm not afraid to ask. Yeah. And I don't know. I just there just seems like a lot of people that. I think we've lost a lot of social skills and nobody's telling people how to get them back. Something <laughs> as simple as pick up the phone and give me a call. Like, like, like for real? Like live? I mean, because I have students who'll do that. I'm like, call me. Just let me know what you need. Come email me. Do something. You know, and yeah. they just, they look at you like you're not a chat bot. Like, no, I'm live. <laughs> Touch my hand. You know? <laughs> it's still there. A couple more things, Jeff. Yeah. We've painted a picture of who you are business-wise. Tell us, Jeff, the husband and father. You have a wonderful family. Okay, sure. Happy to do it. So uh, I've been married to my wife, Dorothy, since 1997, so a number of years at this point. I uh, met in law school, and uh, we had our first of three children uh, about three years out of law school, if I got my math correctly. Uh, I have three daughters. The, the oldest one, uh, Catherine, is a Ph.D. candidate in chemistry up at the University of Wisconsin, she talks to me what she does, and I have no idea what she means, but that's awesome. I think she found her passion. She found her spot, which is super cool, research scientist. Uh, I have a, another daughter. My next one is uh, Susanna, who just finished her first semester at the College of Charleston and is studying history. So different background, different experience, different kid, same DNA mix-up right, or match-up, right? How does that happen? And then my, my youngest, uh, Margaret, is a, a junior in high school in Quaker Valley and is a competitive swimmer amongst being a, a good student. And, uh, you know, hey, I tell people, look, I, I work. I love what I do. My passion's always been around the family. Sure. And, uh, you know, trying to give them a, a nice head start and give them some, some cool stuff in life and spending time with them. So in a nutshell, that, that's the family side. Um, love outdoor stuff in the summertime, kayaks, lakes, Swimming, hiking. I've got three dogs. I hike a lot with. So uh, you, if you if find me not at work, you'll find me out <laughs> on a trail somewhere more likely than not. And finally, how can people get your book? Easiest way to get the book is Amazon, and I mean this sincerely. I love reviews. I don't have a ton of them yet. It's only been out since late September. But uh, or if you want to pick up the phone and call me and tell me exactly what you think, that's fine too. <laughs> uh, I'll take criticism, feedback, good and bad, anytime. Uh, because I want the next piece that I write to be that much better. And I want to respond to people, and I want to make sure they're getting to see what it is they want from me, because the, there's a lot of knowledge there. And if I can help one business owner, even if I never meet them, successfully navigate that process, that's awesome. I love the fact when they hire me, because I get paid to do it, but if they can pick up that book and learn a few tricks and things like that that moves them down a path, that's great. The Descent is the real climb, unexpected truths about successful business transitions. With Jeff Getty, thank you so much for being on. Appreciate it. We've oh, been talking you. about this for a while, so I'm glad uh, we finally pulled it off. Yeah, thanks for keeping after me. This was super fun and really enjoyed the conversation, guys. Uh, enjoy the show. Uh, so looking forward to hearing your next set of guests. This All is right. great. Thanks, Jeff. Again, appreciate the time. And by the way, this is an hour went fast. That's why I looked up and I was yeah, like, wow. It did. It so thanks, Jeff. Thank you. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. And thank you, Mom and Pop. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>